0: Listen, the Bible doesn't mumble. It speaks very clearly. But what Christians are tempted to do is to reinterpret it so that it doesn't make them feel so uncomfortable in their culture. Let God be true and every man a liar.
1: Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Do you know where you stand in relation to the kingdom of God? Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom has part eight for us of What Your View of Scripture Says About You. Jesus says that your ultimate status in His future kingdom will be based on how you view and treat the scripture. If you downplay or minimize even a portion of it, you'll be the least in His kingdom. If, on the other hand, you exalt and honor the Scripture, even in its supposedly insignificant parts, if you submit to His Word and believe His voice from the pages of Scripture, then Jesus Himself will exalt and honor you in His future kingdom. Is that the case with you, friend? Do you exalt God and His Word in the way He deserves? Let's join our teacher for more now on The Word Unleashed.
0: Three times God gave Peter a vision in which he saw these unclean animals and God said, Arise, kill and eat. And he said, I can't. Those are unclean. I've never done anything like that. And God said, Don't call what I have cleansed unclean. In fact, you go to 1 Timothy and guess what? Those who prohibit certain foods are called. Those participating with the doctrines of demons. Demons. Listen, if God has rendered everything clean, it's clean. You can eat it. So don't buy all that stuff. All right. That's an aside. Look at Colossians 2. Still talking about this ceremonial law. The food laws are gone. We don't have to keep those. Colossians 2, all of that system of festivals and feasts, those are gone too. Look at verse 13, Colossians 2. When Jesus died, he forgave us all of our transgressions. That's a legal word. All of our violations of the law. How did he do that? Verse 14, he canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us. Listen, you and I owed God obedience, but we didn't give it to him. So we accumulated debt. Debt we could never pay. When Jesus died, God took our violation of all that we should have done, the whole document that showed our debt, and he nailed it to Jesus' cross, and he paid it in full. That's what he goes on to say. Verse 14, having nailed it to the cross. Therefore, verse 16, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food. There's the, there's the dietary laws and drink. Or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, the annual festivals, the monthly new moon feasts, or the weekly Sabbath days, because those festivals and feasts are a mere shadow, but the body belongs to Christ. In verse 17 of Colossians 2, Paul completely wipes away our responsibility to keep any of those special days or the dietary laws. It's done. That's our authority for doing it, though. It's not our own authority. If I had time, I'd take you to Hebrews. Read Hebrews 7, 8, 9, and 10. There, the writer of Hebrews sets aside all of that sacrificial system. In fact, listen to what he he says in Hebrews 10, verse 10. He took away the Old Testament sacrificial system... And replaced it with the once-for-all death of Christ. That's in Hebrews 10, 9 and 10. He took away the first to establish the second. He took away those system, that system of sacrifices, and he replaced it with the once-for-all death of the perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ. And the writer of Hebrews just immediately says, that entire system is passé, because it was fulfilled in Christ. So we don't have to obey the ceremonial laws. And let me quickly touch on the other two. Although we do not have to keep the ceremonial laws, we do have to keep the civil laws in this sense. Read Romans 13. The responsibility for carrying out all those civil laws is no longer... Israel or the church. It's each nation. Romans 13 says, you and I are to submit to the authority of secular government God has set over us. So the civil responsibility has been translated or transferred, I should say, to the secular government, to our government. We are responsible to them. They now have that authority. What about the moral law? It is clear in the New Testament that there were moral aspects of the Old Testament law summarized in the Ten Commandments. In fact, it's interesting, all ten, excuse me, let me say that differently, nine of the ten commandments are repeated and reiterated in the New Testament. The only one that's not is the Sabbath command, and we just saw in Colossians 2 why that one's not, because that was set aside. The principle is still there. We're to set aside time to worship God and we're to work six days, but the specific requirements of the Sabbath have been set aside, according to Colossians 2, 16 and 17. But the laws are repeated. The other nine are repeated and reiterated. In Ephesians 6, Christian kids or or kids of Christian parents are called to obey the fifth commandment, honor your mother and father. In James 2, James reiterates several of the commandments and calls Christians to obey them. In fact, in Matthew 5, we're going to see Jesus chooses six Old Testament laws, and he brings those laws to bear on New Testament believers. He explains and applies to his disciples those six Old Testament laws that were neither civil nor ceremonial, but are moral. So understand then, that when Jesus speaks of annulling one commandment, he does not mean that the New Testament believer must keep every Old Testament law, including the ceremonial law. He means, and this is key, without his authorization, we must not downplay or disregard any portion of the scripture. And the eternal moral law that served as the foundation to the Mosaic law is still binding on the conscience's of both unbelievers and believers. If you're an unbeliever here this morning, you know God's law. He wrote it on your heart. You have it in His Word. And your conscience accuses you when you break it. And that is intended to show you your guilt and the impossibility that you could ever earn an acceptance with God. It is, as Paul says in Galatians 3, to drive you to Christ, because He's your only hope. If you're a believer... That law doesn't gain you acceptance with God, but it becomes a pattern for your holiness and your obedience. Jesus says that the disciple who feels free to annul some portion of God's Word, either in theory or in practice, is not worthy of his honor. Notice this dishonorable disciple not only annuls the commandment for himself, but verse 19 says he teaches others to do the same. He uses his influence to convince others to downplay the Scripture in their own lives. How? Well, by his example, by his attitude, by his conversation, or perhaps even by his formal teaching. So, his spiritual status, he's in the kingdom. His treatment of Scripture, he feels free to annul at least the least Old Testament command, perhaps others, and he teaches others to do the same. In other words, in his life and through his influence, he downplays some portion of the Scripture without Christ's authority. Now, on the basis of that, Jesus diagnoses his spiritual condition. Look again at verse 19. He shall be called. That's a divine passive. It's not that other people are going to call him this. It's that God is going to say this. And in fact, in context, probably Christ himself. He will be called least. In the kingdom of heaven, the word least means lower in status, lower in quality, inferior. It's a shocking statement, really. Jesus says that the true Christian who downplays or minimizes any portion of Scripture, I myself will call him least in my future kingdom. John MacArthur writes, Jesus declares that he will hold those in lowest esteem who hold his word in lowest esteem. Greatness is not determined by gifts, success, popularity, reputation, or size of ministry, but by a believer's view of Scripture as revealed in his life and teaching. So here's a true Christian, but one who downplays the Scripture or some portion of it in his own life and in his teaching and therefore merits dishonor from Christ. You want to evaluate your own spiritual condition? Ask yourself some simple questions about your relationship to the Scripture. What is the level of your love for the Scripture? Are you committed to read it, to study it, to meditate on it, to try to understand it? And are you equally committed to obeying it, whatever it says, however much it cuts across your own desires or the designs of the culture? If the answer is yes, then Jesus says you are spiritually healthy and an honorable disciple. To whatever extent your answer to that question or those questions has to be no, to that extent you are a dishonorable disciple, unworthy of his honor. There's a second category of people in this passage. Second half of verse 19. We'll call this group the honorable disciples. This person is in the kingdom and is worthy of Christ's honor. Look at the second half of verse 19. But whoever keeps and teaches, notice them is supplied by the translator, probably better it, meaning the Scripture, He shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Again, and I've already pointed this out, but notice that this person too is or will be in the kingdom. He's a real Christian. But his response to Scripture is different than the group in the first half of the verse. Notice how he responds. He keeps it. The Greek word translated keeps is the normal Greek word for do. He does it. He responds to the Scripture in obedience. He does it. He doesn't even set aside the least Old Testament command. Instead, he commits himself to personally obeying all of the Scripture, even those commands that seem insignificant. This is reiterated in the Old and New Testament. In Deuteronomy 12, verse 32, we read, God says, whatever I command you, whatever I command you, you shall be careful to do, you shall not add to it, which some Christians are tempted to do, nor shall you take away from it. Just do what I said the way I said to do it. Jesus says the same thing in the New Testament. You remember at the Great Commission in Matthew 28, what does he say to his disciples? I want you to go, make disciples, baptize them, and once you've made disciples and baptized them, I want you to teach them What? All that I have commanded you. Don't leave anything out and don't add to it. So they keep it. They do it. Notice the other way that the honorable disciple treats the scripture. He teaches it. This Christian not only endeavors to personally obey all Scripture, but he uses his influence to magnify and exalt the Scripture in the minds of others. He honors and exalts the Scripture in his life and in his teaching. And in light of that, notice Jesus' diagnosis of his spiritual condition. He shall be called by Christ himself great in the kingdom of heaven, megas in the kingdom of heaven. Christ will honor the believer who exalts and honors the Scripture. William Hendrickson, the great Presbyterian commentator, writes, although all is of grace and nothing whatever is earned by the citizen of the kingdom, yet his rank or position in that kingdom will depend on and be commensurate with his respect for God's holy law. Wow. The main point is in Matthew 5.19 is this. The one whom Jesus will honor in the future will be the one who honors his word now. So why is this so important to God? Listen to Psalm 138.2. And I think the ESV best captures the Hebrew in, of this verse. Here's how it reads. You have exalted above all things your name and your word. God, you have exalted above everything else your character and your word. You know what that says? God's revealed word is equally important to him as his own character. So to dishonor his word is to dishonor him and to honor his word is to honor him. Now obviously, those of us who know God as father, we don't want to dishonor him We want to honor Him. We don't want to downplay His Word. This is pretty important. So the question is, how do we normally do that? How are we tempted to downplay the Word of God in our lives? Very quickly, let me give you some things to think about. Several examples. Here's how we downplay the Word of God. Number one, replacing Scripture with another authority. Maybe it's tradition Maybe it's like in the Roman Catholic Church, the magisterium, which sets above the Scripture and determines its meaning. Maybe it's like the men at Bio Logos who use science to determine what Genesis 1 and 2 means rather than the other way around. But some authority becomes more important in your life than Scripture. Has that happened to you? Is there something that you allow to sit in judgment on the Scripture? Versus the Scripture sitting in judgment on everything else. A second way is downplaying the Scripture for personal experience. There's so many people in today's church, I don't mean necessarily in this church, although I'm sure it's true here as well, but in the church at large, there are so many Christians who care more about their experience than about the Scripture. I have had people say to me, they'll tell me they're doing something or they believe something, and I'll say, well, you know, let's look at the Scripture together and see. I'm not sure that exactly meshes with what God says here. I've had them say to me, listen, don't bring up the Scripture. I know what I've experienced. That is to downplay the role of the Scripture in their lives. Another way is to emphasize personal revelation over Scripture. There are those, particularly in the charismatic community, who believe God still reveals things to them personally and directly today. God told me. God said this to me. That always undermines the Scripture. Because if you have to choose between God speaking to you in a 3,000 year old book, 2,000 to 3,000 year old book, or God speaking to you personally today, which are you going to choose? I'll tell you which you'll choose every time. And they do too. It undermines the Scripture. Another way that the Scripture is undermined is by abusing it in the corporate worship of the church. Folks, this is happening across the Metroplex today. There are other good churches. I'm not saying ours is the only one. But there are plenty of churches where the Word of God is being abused. How do they abuse it? Well, sometimes they replace the Scripture largely with self-help talks. I hate to mention this to you or admit this to you, but periodically I watch some of the messages of the megachurches in our area to see kind of what's going on. And I'm amazed at how little scripture you can fit into 20 minutes. <laughs> I, I watched a local, I lo, I local megachurch, apparently the pastor was away, and a woman spoke for him that day, which is contrary to 1 Timothy 2, by the way. But, but she spoke, and she spoke on, you know, our real problem is that we're perfectionists. That's our problem. Well, okay, it's true. There are people who don't understand grace, and that can be an issue. But I think the larger problem is not understanding what Jesus says. We're going to get to it in Matthew five forty-eight. Be perfect as your Father is perfect. Our problem isn't that we're perfectionists. Our problem is that we're not. Others abuse the Scripture by dumbing it down, assuming people can't understand it or don't want it even refusing to use biblical language, words like justification and sanctification. Others abuse the the scripture by taking texts out of their context. A fifth way that we can downplay the scripture is by neglecting it to make time to pursue our own personal activities. I think this is the biggest way Christians downplay the scripture. It just gets pushed out by other activities There are countless activities that Christians allow to push the Scriptures out of their lives. Might be career. Ask yourself this question. Is it your career? Is it your school? Is it hobbies? Sports? Entertainment? Television? For some people it's even video games. Just ask yourself this question. Do you spend more time pursuing your own entertainment and amusement every day than you do in the timeless eternal Word of God? If if that's true... Then, in a very real sense, you are guilty of what Jesus is talking about in this text. A final way that I think we downplay the scripture is by reinterpreting it to fit popular cultural ideas. We just kind of tweak it so that it doesn't sound quite so out of step. For example, replacing biblical creationism with theistic evolution, or replacing the historical Adam of Genesis 1, 2, and 3 with a metaphor or an analogy. Replacing the biblical role of women in the home and in the church with Christian feminism. Replacing the sin of homosexuality with the choice of a sexual preference. Listen, the Bible doesn't mumble about these things. It speaks very clearly. But what Christians are tempted to do is to reinterpret it so that it doesn't make them feel so uncomfortable in their culture. Let God be true and every man a liar. We must accept the Scripture for what it says. Jesus says your ultimate status in his future kingdom will be based on how you treat the Scripture. If you downplay or minimize even a portion of it, even the least significant portion, without His authorization, you will be the least in His kingdom. If on the other hand, you exalt and honor the Scripture, even in its insignificant parts, if you let God speak and you listen to His voice from the pages of Scripture, then Jesus Himself will exalt and honor you in His future kingdom. Now, I want you to turn to Hebrews as we transition to communion. Hebrews chapter 8. Because I want to transition by asking this question. Why do you desire the Scripture? Why do you love it? Why do you desire to do it? Why does this even matter to you? Is it because you're just smarter than everybody else? No. It's because you have been swept up in an eternal covenant that God has made. Look at the end of Hebrews 8. The writer of Hebrews is talking about the new covenant and that you and I are participants in it. And that new covenant, a covenant is simply a legally binding promise. God has made a legally binding promise with you. It includes several things, but I want you to see the middle of verse 10, what it includes. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts. Listen, the reason you love and delight in the scripture is because God promised he would give you that desire and delight. The reason you will sit for 45, 50 minutes, whatever it's been this morning and listen to the word of God taught isn't because of me. It's because God has written the love for and the desire for his word upon your heart and the desire and ability to obey it. And he promised to do that. But here's the good news. You and I still live in the flesh and we still fail to obey it. Look at the final promise in this new covenant. Verse 12, when we don't keep it, I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will choose not to remember. That's what it means. I will choose not to remember their sins. And that will be true forever. I will not remember their sins forever. That's really what we celebrate in the Lord's table. It's that you and I have come to participate through the death of Christ in that new covenant. We are beneficiaries of those promises. Let's pray together.
1: That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with Part 8 of What Your View of Scripture Says About You. Join us next time for Part 9 as Tom once again takes us to God's Word. Well, Tom, can you encourage our listeners who might be wrestling with either their trust in the Bible or the Lord Jesus Christ?
0: There are really two paths that you can take to increase your confidence in Christ and the Scriptures. One of those is to look at all the external evidence, to look at the number of manuscripts of the New Testament and how close to the original documents that those manuscripts were written. The scripture stands up to that scrutiny, and that evidence will convince you. But there's another path, and that is simply to have an open heart, to come to the scripture and ask God to make it clear to you. Because Jesus said, anyone who will do his will will know of the teaching, whether he speaks of himself or of God. John chapter 7. So if you will come to the Scripture, you'll find that it is self-authenticating if you have an open heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll find that He affirms your confidence in the Scripture, and the Scripture will in turn confirm your confidence in Him.
1: Thanks, Tom. Church leadership can often seem like hazardous duty, leaders can have both mountaintop experiences and seasons of discouragement. How can you, as a leader of Christ's church, faithfully respond to the different perspectives on leadership and the trials and triumphs of ministry? In Tom Pennington's book, Faithful Stewards, Tom identifies three key perspectives on church leadership that can help you maintain spiritual stability in ministry. Purchase your copy of Faithful Stewards today at thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.